Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive. Some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Asked and answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear-cut. So we're bringing you right to the source. One-on-one, candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. Welcome to the CNAS Women in National Security podcast, where we're talking with a number of women uh, in national security about their experiences, their challenges, and opportunities in the field. I'm Kate Kidder, and I am joined right now by Kimberly Jackson, currently of the RAND Corporation. So Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the field of national security? Sure. Um, Thanks for having me first. Um, So to tell that story, I would actually start back in um, undergrad just to uh, lay the groundwork that I had no background whatsoever in political science, no interest in national security beyond um, the uh, field of foreign policy, which was interesting to me. Um, I'd actually had... um, focused on sports journalism as a way to learn how to write. Um, I really liked research, and I um, I really relished being able to be assertive um, in an environment where there actually weren't a lot of women. I learned pretty quickly that um, I did fairly well um, showing my ability to research, my ability to write, and to get stories. However, um, I also learned pretty quickly I didn't want that lifestyle of, of traveling around and, um, and writing for a living, not really knowing where I'd get my next paycheck. So I moved into um, politics. I started working as an intern. Um, this was back in Wisconsin in the early 2000s. And one internship led to uh, another internship, and I ended up out in Washington, D.C. So I moved out to Washington, D.C., and I was an intern in Ted Kennedy's office, and I worked on his armed services portfolio. Um, And I ended up in there because I happened to be the only intern in the room one day when the foreign policy advisor asked if uh, any of the interns knew anything about national security. And so by default, I got to help them out. Um, And it turned out that the work that I did uh, was up to their standards, and I kept working in that office. And as this was at the beginning of the Iraq war, uh, I started compiling casualty reports for the senator. And it became very real to me right away that um, this world of national security that I had once perceived to be so uh, different than my own world um, had a face to it, had several faces to it. And uh, from there, I continued to intern and I continued to learn more about national security, moved over into another senator's office, later got promoted and um, was his military uh, LA for a couple of years. And so after I had that job, it was for a senator from Minnesota, I learned a lot more about military health. Um, this was in 2004 to 2006 time period when post-traumatic stress disorder had become a very um, 
uh, it had become an issue that had a lot of relevance, it had, but it didn't have enough resources behind it. And so I worked with the Minnesota National Guard to try and stand up a national program based on a model that um, they had implemented for their own National Guardsmen. With that, I went to grad school. I was so interested in this concept of how do you better take care of military service members for uh, an issue that there is still so much stigma around, especially more than 10 years ago, that I focused on, um, on public policy and public health, but really with an eye towards military health care, which opened my eyes to the world of military readiness. Um, came back from grad school in 2009 uh, and was a presidential management fellow in uh, the office of the Secretary of Defense, where I first met Lauren, actually. And um, from there, I had gotten some advice uh, also from a CNAS expert from Paul Charest, who at the time was a colleague. And he, uh, in my first month as a PMF, said, forget about the subject matter. Work for somebody who you really believe in work, follow the leadership. And so I went to uh, the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict, and I met a DASD, Gary Reed, who everybody said, ah, knowing your personality, you guys are probably going to get along. And uh, they were absolutely correct. And within about a week of, of working my first rotation in ASD SOLIC, um, I realized that not only were these issues, special operations readiness issues that I cared so much about, but I'd found a community in which I really felt that um, my personality fit in. Uh, people always say, oh, the military really taught you how to swear. I was like, no, I found my, I found my home. Um, but as, you know, aside from that, I also found that here's this community that cares about the same issues that I do, but what they care about more than where I came from or that I'm young or that I'm female is that I came to contribute. And I'm an equal player on the team. And I think that the special operations community um, from outsiders often gets viewed as, oh, they're probably more misogynistic. They're probably harder to work with as a woman. And I just found that, that the opposite was true. And so I spent the next several years um, working within the Department of Defense at Special Operations Commands, um, within a few different offices in OSD on special operations, um, and then later on uh, Syria policy. Left the Department of Defense in 2015, and um, yeah, in 2015, and then uh, came over to Rand Corporation after a short-lived stint in consulting. I guess it's also important to note that in 2012, I also, uh, after a civilian deployment to uh, Yemen, I decided to seek a commission in the Navy Reserve, and I'm an intelligence officer in the Navy Reserve. That's great. So one of the questions that we've been posing to a number of our interviewees is that women often receive the question, how do you deal with or what is it like to be a woman in national security? How do you answer this? You certainly touched on the fact that in the community that you found, you don't always feel like an outsider, but how do you deal with this question? So I, I think it also depends on where you are in national security policy, because there are very big divisions between the academic um, environment of national security policy, which is largely where I am now within um, my capacity at RAND, um, and the military policy community, whether I'm talking about that with my Navy hat or cap on, um, 
or whether I'm talking about the majority of the policy work that I've done, which is, has really been primarily military-focused policy, um, military programs and authorities, things like that. I think that um, within the military policy community, you, I try very hard to not act like a different person regardless of where I am. I've seen, I've had it experienced myself and I've seen women try to take on different personas based upon their read of how they'll get treated if they act any other way. And um, I think that, that that spans the, I'm gonna act as androgynous, dress as, as androgynously as possible so as to fit in directly and not draw attention to the fact that I'm female, to the entire, um, to the entire opposite, right? And I think that it does not matter which persona you choose as long as it's genuine, particularly in the special operations community, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the most important thing is that you are there to contribute. And it's very difficult to contribute or look like you're contributing um, to your fullest extent if it seems that you're not being genuine and, it, and if it seems that you are trying too hard to either not, not look like a woman at all, not be a woman, not, and not act the way you normally would. Or on the other hand, if it looks like you're trying way too hard to be one of the boys, I, I think that part of what makes the military great uh, increasingly is that there is a focus on jointness, on um, networking with civilian agencies and with other uh, countries, governments, and um, militaries. And with that, there is more and more of an embrace of, of different backgrounds. Now, it doesn't mean that I think it's there's no uh, difference between being a male and a female in national security policy or in the military. But I do think that there, are, for every negative story we hear about integration, I think there are a lot more positive ones that we don't end up hearing about, but certainly that I experience in my daily interactions, um, both as a service member and as a civilian. How do I answer that? Um, I do. I do get asked that a lot. You know, how do you how do you deal with it? And frankly, it's not that much different to me than a lot of the other per pursuits um, that I've been involved with, such as when I was attempting to be a sports journalist for a short period of time. Um, I think that you do have to be a little self protective, um, but I don't know that that's different than women in any other environment. Um, you certainly have to know what you're talking about. The, the division bef before you open your mouth in a meeting with a number of men that you have not seen before, um, between how they would look at you as a woman and how they would look at a man that they've never seen before and the assumptions they would make about your experience and what you know. That division is enormous. But I found, uh, particularly again in the special operations community, but not only there, that when you start talking and, it's pr and, and you have proof that you know what you're talking about, that you have done your homework, that those um, predilections really do minimize quite a bit. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, aside from the extra work and preparation, it absolutely exists that you have to advocate for yourself, not only because women, it seems, are, are a little bit pre predisposed to not doing that as much as men do, um, but it, particularly in a military-heavy environment, you are by nature going to be around more assertive people, and if you do not 
also practice that assertiveness, you're going to get lost in that crowd. You have to advocate for yourself. It's also you know, a big boys and girls rules kind of organization where it's up to you to forge your career path and get the things that you need and create the networks that you need. Um, and that is, uh, I think it's harder for a lot of women to do from the outset. Um, but it's definitely essential within national security in order to be successful. I think that's absolutely right. We talk a lot about getting women to the table, but also how do we think about preparing women when they're at the table so that they can succeed? We often hear uh, that it doesn't matter that you're a woman in national security, but when did it first dawn on you that you were the only woman in the room? Right. So I think I do think um, you're right. A lot of women say that it, it doesn't matter. And I think it'd be nice if it didn't matter. But I think ge gender always matters. I think it doesn't need to matter in terms of your success. It doesn't need to matter in in terms of your professionalism that you bring to the table. Um, but I have just because I choose not to let that be what defines me does not mean that I don't notice it. Right. Um, and the first time I noticed it within national security was when I was working on Capitol Hill. And I had been, uh, I had just moved over um, from being an intern and I was learning about the military at its very basic level. Um, I had been chosen for this particular job because I knew um, some of the staff members from my previous internship who said, hey, she went to college in Minnesota. We work for a Minnesota senator. Bring her over. She's got to answer mail, write letters, support the um, support her boss, um, who's actually the advisor to the senator on military issues. It's okay if she needs to learn. Um, well, that boss uh, between me and the senator left about nine months after I started that job. And I was still incredibly uncomfortable. I think I was 23 or 24 um, with my understanding of the military of the Department of Defense, which, you know, to be fair, I, I should have been uncomfortable with that. I was still learning. It, it, it's a lot. And um, when, the, when my, my immediate boss left, the senator asked if I would be his military LA, which uh, if you're familiar with the Hill, that's generally on the Senate side a a much more a much more senior person would fill that role. Somebody with a lot more experience, maybe even retired um, out of the military, or certainly has been working on these issues for a long time. And I thought, uh, wow, that's uh, the most terrifying thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, just me advising the United States Senator on an, on the Armed Services Committee. Um, about issues that I'm not even completely sure that I know that much about yet. And so I went to my chief of staff and um, I told him, you know, I really appreciate the offer, but I just, I just don't think that I have the experience and the knowledge to do this job. And I, so I have to turn it down. Um, I, I, I want to keep working here. I want to keep learning. Thank you. But no. And he looked at me uh, and um, his name was Jack. And, and Jack had spent a number of years in the army. Um, Jack was probably about 32, early 30s. Um, and he said, stern look on his face, you know, Kimberly, no man would ever turn down a job because he didn't think he was experienced enough. And here's me thinking that I'm this tough, independent, I can do anything girl who would never let gender roles get in her way. And I just paused and looked at him and I thought like, ah, he totally got me. That is exactly right. And I am not, 
I am not going to just capitulate to that fear that a whole other half of the population doesn't even address. So I took the job and I was, uh, I ended up being good at it, but I think it was, uh, I mean, it was, I didn't sleep for weeks. It was, I think, um, I, you know, drinking from the fire hose, it didn't even, does not cover it. I think I said drinking from like the tidal, like a tidal wave. It was, I learned so much um, and I had so many people to help me and I loved the job and it was absolutely foundational for the rest of my career. Um, and I would not be where I am even remotely. Um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing at all had my boss not reminded me that I was I was distancing myself from my male counterparts. That's a really powerful finding that we've had over time, that advocacy and mentorship of men for women is absolutely essential, especially in a field that's so dominated by men. We need to find those advocates up the chain and work with them. So one last question for you. If more women were in national security roles at senior levels, do you think there would be an effect on the way that the U.S. administers its foreign policy, how do you think that might differ? Well, I think we'd probably listen to each other a lot more, right? There would be less interrupting. Um, I do think that uh, women naturally, and and maybe it's not even naturally, maybe it's a learned behavior uh, over time in national security, we've learned to let each other um, finish sentences and then talk rather than waiting for a turn I turn to discuss your own opinion as as opposed to having a, a real dialogue. Um, so I think that, that that alone would actually be quite a bit more helpful. I think when you look at um, when you look at the leadership roles that women have played, just looking even at the Department of Defense, when you look at Michelle Flournoy, you look at Christine Wormuth, um, and you, you then talk to people about their impressions of how the department was run under their leadership, it's it's incredibly positive. I mean, certainly um, when, when Michelle Flournoy came in, she took the reins from a very different leader in the policy environment. And um, I think that emphasizing um, collegiality, emphasizing collaboration, these are things that, that people assume that women are just going to be a little bit better at, but I, but I also think that um, we maybe place more of a premium on strategic thinking, um, on patience, because we've had to do that with our own lives and our own careers, um, and we, because by nature of us having to have done so much more work, so much more research in order to uh, achieve that credibility that that we need to survive in this realm, I think by and large you're going to get more thoughtful. Um, and well-informed leaders than you otherwise would have because they they maybe hadn't had to do, if they hadn't had to do all of that work, hadn't had to come so prepared, so um, able to speak to the myriad issues that are on their plate, I think the national security world would look a lot different. Um, I also think that um, it would present an interesting um, mandate for international leaders if we had more women in national security leadership roles, um, whether that's on the state side, whether that's on um, the DOD side, uh, because in a lot of the places where we have active partnerships uh, around the world, the idea of having a woman in 
in their leadership positions is unheard of. Um, and so I think that to, to provide more of that example, we, we may perpetuate slightly more acceptance, who knows, by osmosis, sitting in those meetings. Um, I think that it would be, um, it, it would make changes like that. That said, I don't, the content, the way that we wage wars, the decisions that we make, the authorities that we give our forces, the, uh, the places that we choose to employ them, I don't know that that would be that different. Um, I think that analysis is analysis. I think that um, politics would, would also remain politics. And a lot of the considerations that, um, that men are largely uh, making right now, a lot of the decisions they are largely making, women still have a very heavy role in them, in shaping them, um, regardless of whether they are in the lead seat or not. And so I don't know that the formulation of policy would necessarily look different. That's great. So I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you.